O-R-G. So the title of this talk is Buddhism in Brief. Now, over the last 2,600 years since the Buddha's death in northern India, the character of Buddhism has been influenced by the various cultures that it has traveled to. Currently, there are three primary schools of Buddhism called the Three Vehicles. The Vajrayana is the form that we find in Mongolia and Tibet. The Mahayana or Zen we'll tend to find in China, Korea, and Japan. And the Theravada tends to be clustered in the, called the Southern School and clustered in Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka. All these styles and approaches and schools of Buddhism can be found thriving in the Bay Area. Insight Meditation South Bay is oriented towards the Theravada tradition. That's the tradition that my practice is primarily rooted in. And so we bring this perspective of the Southern School to the way that we present the teachings. We are not a temple, but we are a Buddhist organization. So you won't find very much ritual. Okay, we do ring the bell once in a while. But it's pretty simple. We do have one or two rituals a year. Usually we celebrate Vesak, which is the big Buddhist holiday that celebrates the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, and death all rolled into one holiday on the full moon in May. And we actually had that here this past May. But other than that, we don't do very much ritual. You won't see us doing much bowing. You won't see us doing much chanting hear us doing much chanting. Even in here, many of you have your shoes on, which you would not find in a traditional temple. I think it's important to understand that there's a difference between the rituals and the teachings. And rituals, when they embody the teachings, can be very powerful and very full. When they simply become traditions that are enforced to look like good Buddhists, then they might not have as much meaning to us. As Buddhism has come to the West, every group sort of decides itself about how much ritual it wants. You know, what really makes sense? I I like to minimize the ritual and have individuals just choose for themselves how they wish to embody a discipline of practice. You will find in many temples, though, a practice of bowing. And if you're new to Buddhism, maybe you were a little nervous, I don't know, were you going to have to do something you were uncomfortable with? Was there going to be incense you would have to light or candles that you'd have to, to pray to or Buddha images that you'd be expected to bow to? I think it's important to understand that when a Buddhist bows to the Buddha image, that bow is simply a gesture of respect, of honor. And the honor is not to the Buddha as some kind of deity or god that is worshipped. It's a way simply of recollecting the potential for enlightenment. The Buddha is seen as a human being, a man who lived in ancient India a few thousand years ago. And his mind opened to the truth of things, to the nature of life. He understood the causes of suffering. 
And he presented a path of teachings that could enable other people to realize for themselves also the causes of suffering. He basically awakened. This awakening, we might use the term awakening, we might use the term enlightenment, but whatever we call it, it basically means that the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion have been uprooted. That's what enlightenment is about. It's not about some esoteric knowledge. It's about uprooting the causes of suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion. Enlightenment is not something that is bestowed upon us by a great guru, a great teacher, or by the vision of the Buddha. Praying to the Buddha does not absolve us of the consequences of our actions, of our conditioning, of our patterns. It does not end our suffering. And so in the way that we practice meditation, we don't pray. We examine. We examine the mind with a desire to understand what really happens in this encounter with experience. What happens in seeing? What happens in hearing? What happens in smelling? What happens in tasting? What happens when we feel things with the body? What happens when we think things or feel emotions with the heart or the mind? Is that encounter affected by greed, affected by hatred, affected by a delusion? Or are we seeing the nature of those experiences arising and passing away with a mind that is free from clinging? We each examine our own experience and we practice to purify our own minds and so that we individually will realize the insights that can uproot suffering within our own lives. But we don't have to rediscover the way. We have the benefit of being able to learn and understand what the Buddha discovered and in that way apply the teachings and techniques that he offered and that the tradition has preserved to see what is useful for our own discovery of peace. What can we apply to our own lives? Not everything that we read in the texts makes sense in our culture and our time. But much of it does. Most of it does. Because we're still dealing with minds. We're still dealing with bodies. We're still dealing with human lived experience. And the causes of suffering haven't changed so much over the last few thousand years. We might casually hear people say, the Buddha solved his problem. Now we must solve our own. And I think it's quite true. I'd like to introduce a few of the basic teachings that are most fundamental to this practice. The first is a central tenet of Buddhism that's encapsulated in the doctrine called the Four Noble Truths. This is essentially the structure for the exploration of suffering, how we relate to suffering through the course of our birth, our life, and our death. The first noble truth is called the truth of suffering that must be fully known. It's not something we usually like to hear, right? People want to go to the end of suffering. But actually, the first step is to know that conditioned phenomena 
is unreliable. There's suffering. There's unsatisfactoriness. The Pali term is dukkha, translated as either suffering or unsatisfactoriness, sometimes as stress. Do we know that there's stress? Do we know that there's unsatisfactoriness in experience? This truth is to be fully understood. The second noble truth is to know the causes of suffering, which is understood to be craving, and to respond to that craving by abandoning it. So craving is to be abandoned. The third noble truth is about the ending of the causes of suffering, and this ending is to be realized. And the fourth is that there is a way to the ending of suffering. That way is to be cultivated or developed. So embedded in this principal doctrine is a path of action. What we do, we understand something. We abandon the causes of suffering. We realize the end of suffering, and we develop the way, the path. We understand, abandon, realize, and develop. It's the clarity of this meditative tradition and this very pragmatic approach and path of practice that how we live, more than what we believe, I think that has captured the interest and the attention of many Western practitioners of Buddhism. It gives us the tools to understand our own lives. It gives us the methods to understand how our minds work. And so in that way, we can see what are we doing to either bring peace and happiness or suffering and confusion into the way we live our lives. The Buddhist training is divided into three sections, and this is a way of understanding the way, the way to the ending of suffering. And these three sections are called the three trainings. And the first is the training in virtue or morality. In the Pali language of ancient Buddhism, it's called sila, Buddhist practices of morality include very specific trainings about right actions, such as refraining from killing other living beings, refraining from stealing or taking what is not ours, to refrain from causing harm through sexual actions or through wrong speech, false speech, lies, malicious or harsh speech, or to practice what's called right livelihood to earn our living in a way that is free from excessive exploitation. The second training is the training in meditation. In Pali, the term is samadhi. And this includes the development of mindfulness, the development of concentration, and also the skillful effort, how we apply our effort in order to cultivate the mind. And the third training is called the training in wisdom. The Pali term is panya. And this includes our view and our orientation to experience and the clarity of intention that precedes our action. These three trainings I considered to be so fundamentally important and vital to the development of our practice and to the path of awakening that when I founded Insight Meditation South Bay this is what I wrote into our articles of incorporation and our bylaws it's the cultivation of these three trainings that is our mission
as an organization that is our purpose. And you'll find that this is what we teach. We teach virtue, we teach mental development, meditation, and we teach wisdom. Insight meditation practice emphasizes also a development of three primary contemplative skills that support meditation. That's concentration, mindfulness, and investigation. We're generally cultivating the capacity to be present with what's here and now, with your experience as it is, so that we're not lost in thought or seduced into a fantasy of a future that has not yet happened and may never occur. And we don't find ourselves chronically dwelling in regrets or remorse or thoughts about the past. We learn to let the past be gone, to learn what we can from it, but to bring the attention into the present moment so that we're not missing the life that we have and we don't disempower ourselves from acting in the present moment with wisdom. When we meditate, we sit in silence. We let the mind settle. We might let the mind rest on the experience of sitting and feeling the body. We might let the attention rest on the breath and observe the in-breath and observe the out-breath. In one way or another, we disentangle the mind from its obsessions with past, with future, with commentary, with discursive thinking. We let go of the anxieties, the fantasies, the worries, reactions, plans, opinions, all the things that occupy and distort our view of things. As we bring ourselves back from this fictional world of thought, we ground our awareness again and again in the present moment. We feel the body sensations of sitting, or we feel the sensations of the breath. And this observation of the body or of the breath helps to develop a calm and clear attention to whatever is occurring in the present moment. We're not lost in thought. We bring mindfulness then to any sensory experience and we find that we have the stability then to open our attention to the whole range of anything that can be perceived and known so that we become mindful of seeing, mindful of hearing, mindful of tasting. We become mindful of moods and emotions. We become mindful of our reactions and responses. Mindful of pleasant feeling, mindful of painful feeling, mindful of thinking and mental habits and patterns. Anything that is seen, heard, sensed, or cognized becomes a valid object for the cultivation of mindfulness. We learn to open to whatever is occurring without being caught up in reactions to it. We cultivate the capacity to be present in life, attentive, aware, and able to respond with wisdom rather than conditioned, habitual reactions. As our meditation practice develops, restlessness and distraction and all those obstacles to peace are replaced by calmness, by equanimity, by happiness, by love, by clarity, by wisdom and understanding. 
Prepared with a stable and clear mind, it becomes easy to see what is actually happening at a much more subtle and refined level. What we discover is that all conditioned processes of mind and of body are constantly changing. We might have a genuine insight into impermanence. Everywhere we look in the mind and the body, we find only momentary processes, momentary sensations, momentary thoughts. We observe the flow of these rapidly fluctuating processes and there we find nothing that we can cling to as a fixed entity, an enduring self. The insight into emptiness of self does not imply a destruction of the ego or a destruction of self. It's an investigation that looks at everything we experience and sees if there is actually any basis to call it mine or to identify with it as who and what I am. We all know that things change. We know that we can't hold on to things, right? I mean, we've all tried. And things change anyway. But the insight into impermanence, the insight into emptiness, frees the mind from that habit to grasp, frees the mind from the craving that keeps us attached to things that lead to suffering. On a conventional level, I would say I am a teacher. On a conventional level, that's accurate. I'm a woman, I'm an American, I'm a sister. This is my body, it's not your body. I experience my feelings, not your feelings. But when I look carefully with meditative awareness into this mind and body, I find only contingent processes, empty of self-existence. So through meditative inquiry, we unravel the subtle attachments, the identification and possessiveness, the processes that keep us caught in stories, concepts, and reactions that perpetuate suffering. Liberating insight reveals the nature of mind and the world to the meditator. It's not a set of beliefs that we must adopt, but it is a presentation of questions that we can investigate. The Buddha's encouragement was to practice, to come and see for ourselves, to study our own minds and see if indeed the Four Noble Truths are true. Are they? It's through meditative investigation that our faith grows, not by adopting good Buddhist beliefs. Sadha, the Pali term for faith, trust, and conviction, can begin with some degree of inspired or bright faith, perhaps. Perhaps an intuition or a resonance with a teaching that you've heard but don't really know yet if it's true. But it doesn't mature into true faith until it's verified repeatedly and deeply through our own meditative experience.
thoughts, as we purify our minds of all the crookedness, the restless thinking, the personal self-centeredness, and the conceptual distortions, and as we cultivate a profound presence, it becomes possible to realize a vast experience of peace. A transformative insight might arise, an insight into the unconditioned, the nature of peace, what in Buddhism is called the realization of Nibbana.